Chapter 15, Rabadash the Ridiculous The next turn on the road brought them out from among the trees, and there, across green lawns, sheltered from the north wind by the high-wooded ridge at its back, they saw the castle of Anvard. It was very old, and built of a warm, reddish-brown stone. Before they had reached the gate, King Loon came out to meet them, not looking at all like Erebus's idea of a king, and wearing the oldest of old clothes, for he had just come from making a round of the kennels with his huntsmen, and had only stopped for a moment to wash his doggy hands. But the bow with which he greeted Erebus as he took her hand would have been stately enough for an emperor. I'm Katie and this is Bethy. Welcome to Fernarnia and for Aslan. Together, we're exploring the horse and his boy, and it's the last chapter. Crazy! Wow. In this chapter, before Erebus and Kor can settle into life with King Loon, something must be done about Rabadash. In the midst of Rabadash's curses and insults, Aslan himself appears to give him exactly the punishment he needs. Peace comes, and they all grow up and get married and have years of adventures in the Golden Age. Ah. Uh. That was awesome. I feel like this chapter has so much going on that I would have really struggled to recap it. I did. Well, you crushed it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. What are some things that stood out to you in this chapter? So it just involved so many moving parts. And in no particular order, I'll just shout out a few that stood out to me. Uh huh. One was that when they were trying to decide first what to do with Rabadash, mm-hmm. everyone was giving their opinions. And then Lucy said, by my counsel, you should give him another trial. And they follow Lucy's opinion. They do. I know. I was really surprised. I was so pleased with that. Mm-hmm. Just in general, I'm really impressed with King Loon that he is open to everybody. In fact, he even Mm. says to one of his attendants, send for the prisoner, friend. Oh, yeah. He calls his attendant a friend. That's so lovely. What a good guy. I know. He's awesome. Another thing that stood out to me was two chapters ago, we were talking about how we're not sure why Susan didn't show up for the fight. Oh, yeah. But in this chapter, I'm super glad that she's not there. Okay, say more. Well, because Rabadash literally says, Be sure I will never desist till I have dragged to my palace by her hair the barbarian queen, the daughter of dogs. Yep. I'm sorry. No woman in the world needs to hear that said about her. And if she had been there and the fight had gone badly, it would have been really dangerous for her. Right. Absolutely. Because their whole goal was to kidnap her. So creepy. Yeah. This is part of the someone else's story, but it seems like Aslan was working something pretty good in her case to stay away from this situation. She was wise to stay. Hmm. So another thing that happens is that Rabadash is shouting all of these ridiculous things. He says, beware, beware, beware. The bolt of Tash falls from above. Does it ever get caught on a hook halfway? Ask him. <laughs> I love that kid. <laughs> He's so clever. Oh He's my so gosh. Quick. <laughs> but <laughs> even better is this, which I didn't catch as a kid. I didn't realize that this is such a diss. But yeah. <laughs> Loon says, Shame, Corin. Never taunt a man save when he's stronger than you, then as you please. I know. He is totally calling Rabadash out. Oh my gosh, I love it. So bad. He's talking right about him being a prisoner. Oh no, I just think that he's straight up saying oh my gosh. that Rabadash <laughs> is a weakling. <laughs> in which case he's going against his own advice and i really hope that corin caught this and corin's like ha, 
dad agrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> they are a funny pair together. Like King Loon is really more mature, of course, and compassionate towards others and thoughtful, but they're a team. Well, and you can kind of see where Corin gets his impishness. Huh, yeah, yeah. And fast forwarding into the future with Prince Corin, I love how he grows up. He becomes like a famous boxer. Yes, it makes so much sense. <laughs> What the heck? Like, <laughs> like Prince Kor ends up being the really dangerous one in battle. I mean, I'm sure Corin is all right. But what he's really good at is climbing this mountain and finding this bear that ought to be a talking <laughs> bear and boxing it, what, like 37 rounds or something? <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's epic. Oh, and it so specifically funny. says without a timer. <laughs> I know. Because <laughs> no one else climbed up there with him. And it right. became a reformed character. <laughs> That's so funny. That's such a like time of peace sort of description. Like the feeling of the golden age here at the end. It's just people having adventures, going off on quests. I don't know. The tone of this book really settles into a, a medieval type of goodness. It really does. There's a lot of things that kind of get wrapped up with a bow at the very end. Mm-hmm. We hear that Erebus and Kor get married. Which I think suits. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And then we hear that Bree and Huynh don't get married. Well, they do. But not to each other. It specifically right. adds, <laughs> yes. which is great. Yeah. Okay. As a kid, I was really upset about that. And now as an adult, I'm like, oh, that makes perfect sense. You. Quinn is way better than Brie. I'm sorry. but <laughs> And they just wouldn't bring out the best in each other. No, they absolutely wouldn't. They deserve other horses. If Brie finds somebody who can kind of really admire him for who he is, even mm -hmm. though he's not a great horse in Narnia. And if Wynne can have somebody who really is in awe of her wisdom and graciousness and right. loveliness, then that's rather nice. And I think we can assume that's what they found. I hope. But they're all good friends still. Something else that happens at the end is Kor and Erebus have a kid. I know. He's the good king of Arkenland, Ram the Great. The greatest of all Arkenland's kings. Do you think that Ram had a brother? I wondered that too, because I was wondering, you know how the names go together? Like Dar and Darin, Kor and Korin. Ram and Ramekin? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes, definitely. Please let that be the case. Ramekin? <laughs> oh my gosh. Ram the Great and Ramekin the Pretty Good. <laughs> <laughs> Ramekin the cook. Yes. <laughs> Wait, what if there's a girl? Do the names go together with the brother and sister? Oh, good question. We haven't seen an example of that, but we haven't. And I think it mentions specifically brothers' names are like that in Arkenland. Yeah. But I wonder. I have known a woman named Ramsey. Oh, well that could I be. I feel fun. like that could work. Ramona. Oh, cute. <laughs> Ram and Ramona. Huh. <laughs> a little Ramekin. Tagging along. Yes, that's the baby brother. <laughs> well, I would love to spend some more time looking at the scene where they decide what to do with Prince Rabadash. Oh yeah, let's do that because it takes up so much of the chapter. It's quite important. In my book, it's on page 230, and I'd like to read the whole thing and then do a fourfold reading, if that's okay, instead of just on one sentence. Oh, for sure. Okay. How about we just go back and forth with each person's ideas, starting with Paradins. Sounds good. Okay. Your majesty would have a perfect right to strike off his head. Such an assault as he made puts him on a level with assassins. It's very true, said Edmund, but even a traitor may mend. I have known one that did. To kill this Rabidash would go near to raising war with the Tisrock, said Darren. 
A fig for the Tisrock, said King Loon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess King Loon does give a fig. Oh, <laughs> oh, I, I forgot about that earlier. No fig for you. <laughs> okay, one fig. Yes, one fig. His strength is in numbers, and numbers will never cross the desert. But I have no stomach for killing men, even traitors in cold blood. To have cut his throat in battle would have eased my heart mightily. But this is a different thing. By my counsel, said Lucy, your majesty shall give him another trial. Let him go free on straight promise of fair dealing in the future. It may be that he will keep his word. Maybe apes will grow honest, sister, said Edmund. But by the lion, if he breaks it again, may it be in such a time and place that any of us could swap off his head and clean battle. It shall be tried, said the king. All right. So our first level of reading is just the literal reading. What is happening in this passage? So they've all just had a delicious meal. I remember lots of cold birds being part of it. Yes, it was cold birds and cold game pie and wine and bread and cheese. Mm. Yum. I would like to eat that just now. Yes. (laughs) And then perhaps to have a bit of counsel over an important matter. Mm -hmm. Yes. Then they realize they can't fully enjoy themselves until they've dealt with Rabidash. And it's interesting seeing the different characters and what they each put forward, especially Edmund. He says, I've known a traitor that did mend and he looked very thoughtful. And that's himself, of course. Mm -hmm. He was a traitor in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and he was put right. It's a really beautiful moment. Mm hmm. Interesting that he's also the one who says maybe apes will grow honest. Yeah, it's funny. He kind of takes it back. But he doesn't resist the idea. He says, yeah, let's let him out. And if he breaks his word, we'll have opportunity to kill him then in a fair fight. Mm -hmm. I don't know. He's pretty judicious. Like he's he's not naive about what might happen. And yet he still values mercy and knows that transformation is possible. Yeah, it is cool that mercy and justice go hand in hand in this chapter. Yeah. And the council ends up coming out on the side of mercy. And then it's Aslan who steps in and makes it stick. I just realized he's called Edmund the Just. He is. Yes. (laughs) So this all makes perfect sense. Mm. All right. So the next reading is typological, which is looking for how this passage connects with other passages in the book. If we were reading from scripture, we'd be looking for connections between the Old and New Testament for foretelling, foreshadowing, And we can look for connections here with scripture as well. Well, I feel like we already did the connections with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with this passage. But what connections do you see to scripture? One thing that comes to mind is when all the disciples are meeting together and trying to decide who the new disciple should be instead of Judas. They think back to scripture to help figure it out. I think they draw lots even. Yeah, I think they might. Yeah. That's a really cool connection. I wouldn't have thought of that. Just trying to think of places where people sit in council. Don't they also have a council before they decide to trust Paul? Oh, well, he does have to be presented to everybody. Yeah, and Barnabas speaks up for him, kind of like Lucy, give him a second chance. And there's the council in Acts 15 where they have to decide about whether to let Gentiles in without being Jews first. And you get different opinions. And again, they appeal to scripture. They hear people's experiences of what the Holy Spirit's doing. The thing that's so interesting in this case is everybody does their best, puts forward their suggestions, and then it's Aslan who actually does the doing, Mm. which might be the case in those other situations too, although invisibly. Right. It is such a relief when Aslan shows up. I think that's a big theme for Lewis. People giving it their best effort, but really it's Aslan who's going to do everything decisive. I don't know that if Aslan hadn't shown up, they could have done it. Based on Rabidash's response to everything they were saying, it was like he was going to force their hand. He was going to have to be killed. 
Right. He was not accepting their mercy, <laughs> which is interesting because like in the recap, I said that Aslan brings him the perfect punishment. But in a way, he was actually giving him reprieve. Right. He was kind of forcing the mercy as well. And I don't know that we've named it yet. But what is the punishment that comes? Well, he gets turned into an ass. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he already was. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yes. Uh, he took on the form of an ass, even though he was already becoming one, the more he spoke. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is a donkey, a real live braying donkey. And he's going to remain so until he stands in front of the temple of Tash and everyone in Tashban sees him become Rabidash again. Isn't it interesting that he says, oh, not a donkey, mercy, if it were even a horse. And that's, of course, when he starts to bray, E-N, a horse, E-A-E-A. -e -a. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are reading a book about a horse. Right. And how awesome they are. Mm. And Rabidash only sees it as one step above a donkey. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure what how to take it I, there's like a level of ridiculous to being this specific animal right. not just an animal and of course the whole time this has been rabidash's worst trait is that he's used to everyone taking him seriously and being terrified of him and he hates to be laughed at mm -hmm. and that's his destiny now right it says to his supreme horror everyone began to laugh and it's emphasized like three times. It says that they try to stop laughing, but they can't help it, which I think is just how Aslan wants it. Oh, absolutely. It is the thing that Rabidash fears most. And he has to come to terms with it because the rest of his life, he's Tisrak. He can't leave Tashban and go off to war because of the circumstances of his healing. He'll become a donkey again. And people, of course, to his face call him Rabidash the Peacemaker, but behind his back, he's always laughed at. But I think for him, it actually is better than the alternative of having his hands always bloody, always going around doing cruelty, better to be chastened and forced to live with being ridiculous. It's a better fate for him. Definitely. It was a mercy to everybody. Yeah. Well, we're getting off of our fourfold reading. The next one is the moral reading. What is the should that comes out of this passage? Mm. Wow. It's pretty obvious to see a few of the what should we do, which is, you know, when there's mercy offered, we take it. Unlike Rabidash. But in our particular reading that we had of this council, it seems like we should also be willing to offer mercy. And particularly looking at Edmund, we should be willing to look at our own self and see how our story can maybe be applied in a situation. Mm -hmm. What wisdom have we gained from some pretty ridiculous things that we've done? <laughs> mm-hmm. Perhaps also a should of listening to others' advice. Each of them brings forward a different suggestion and together they arrive at something that seems good to all of them mm. or at least seems acceptable. Yeah. And then again and again, Aslan offers advice. Have a care, Rabidash. Yeah. The hour is coming. The hour has struck. Warning after warning. And he's set in his ways and digs in his heels even extra. Maybe he should have been a mule. <laughs> True. The last level of fourfold reading is the eschatological level or the I think it's called tropological in medieval parlance <laughs> where we look at what this has to do with big picture spiritual reality pulling back the curtain to see heaven and hell and the second coming and the final days and God's work in the world writ large 
I mean, I think one way we sort of already approached is that people sit in council and seek to follow God or not, but it's God who, uh, what's that verse from Proverbs? People devise plans, but the Lord establishes their steps. Oh, yeah. We've used that in this podcast before. I also see a connection to the last of the Narnia series. Huh. How? Maybe apes will grow honest. Ooh, I noticed that line too. And then in the chapter, we have a donkey. Wow, you're right. That's a very interesting link. It is. I feel like I don't know what to do with it, but fascinating. That ape doesn't grow honest. Yeah. But the donkey is very humble. Of all of the creatures for Lewis to choose in this chapter, he chose those two to mention. Another thing I see, and this is borrowing from the passage a little further ahead, but the hour's coming, the hour's coming, get ready. Oh, yeah. Respond, respond. Yeah. The hour has struck. I've been getting ready an Advent devotional this week for us to use this winter. And there's a lot of passages in it in the lectionary about stay awake, stay alert. You don't know the time and the hour. Any minute now, get your life together, turn to God while you have time. And I think this makes it so clear from a true perspective, from God's perspective, what it looks like when we're not doing that. We're just talking and talking like Rabidash, stupidly, refusing mercy, refusing to listen. I like that connection. Thanks for leading this, Katie. Thanks for dwelling here a little bit. It's a cool passage. It is. So our scripture today has a connection to this section of Rabadash shouting at Aslan. Demon, 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 shrieked the prince. I know you. You are the foul fiend of Narnia. You are the enemy of the gods. Learn who I am. Horrible phantasm. I am descended from Tash. Wow. It's so intense. <laughs> yeah, I see why you make this link. My goodness, that's just how the demons respond to Jesus. Yeah, so we're going to read a section of demons responding to Jesus. It's Luke eight twenty-seven through 33. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven out by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let him go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. <sighs> so intense. So intense. Yeah, and this is almost what Rabidash is like. He's not even a person. He's just this pride and anger and stubbornness operating almost independently. He's absolutely out of control. Yeah, yeah. He tries to curse Aslan with Tash. Yeah. Just, I was so struck by him saying, I know you. Right. Every demon who interacts with Jesus says that. But they know who he is immediately. 
it makes me wonder, maybe there's more to his belief in Tash than just bravado. Like, it sounds like he really, I don't know. Like, there's some power that's actually there. Yeah, like, Tash's power is seen in embodied in Rabidash. This is his adherent, and he's backing him up. And in him, conquered. Right. In this passage, Jesus gives mercy to the demons? He does. And in this passage, Aslan gives mercy to Rabidash. Wow. Yeah. And in the two passages, animals are used, but they're animals yeah. that are looked down upon in that culture. Mm. If it were only a horse. I was surprised as you read this by the order that Luke narrates. First, it says there's this demon possessed man and, you know, that he's living out in the tombs. And then it shows him falling before Jesus and saying, don't torture me. And then it gives like a little more backstory for he had commanded the spirit to come out. Many times it had seized him. He had broken his chains and been driven into solitary places. Like it's like a little sandwich. First, a little background, then what happens, then back to the background. It is odd, isn't it? I was wondering if it's trying to emphasize like this thing in the middle, this what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, don't torture me. And then it talks about the background again, which is clear torture, like right. his life has been tortured. The demons have been torturing the man. Right. And here they're begging for mercy. <laughs> Rabidash never begs for that mercy from Aslan, but he gets it. And it's an odd thing to see Jesus bestowing mercy upon demons. Yeah, okay, you can go in the pigs. They didn't ask for a very good request. All they did was permission to torture this herd of animals and drown them. Right. But maybe it's the most they could ask for, the most they knew how to get. I've never really known what to do with this passage, but putting it alongside Rabidash, I feel like I understand it better. The mercy? Yeah. God is so unchangeable and good. Mm-hmm. Like, unfazed by anything coming in his face. You know, the kings and queens, they were going to have to give up their mercy because Rabidash wasn't ex accepting it. But Aslan doesn't have to. Aslan has more options. <laughs> well, thanks be to God for that. Yeah. <laughs> Makes it really clear that the power to show mercy is the opposite of a weakness. It's a great, you have to have total strength to be merciful. It's true. You have to have strength and restraint and creativity. <laughs> Aslan is very creative here. Extremely. <laughs> I just am so grateful that Jesus would not be described as inexorable, irresistible, someone who uh. does curses. Lightning in the shape of scorpions will rain on you because of him. Uh, yeah. The mountains shall be ground into dust. That's just not a God that I'm interested in serving. <laughs> And it sounds more powerful, but actually it's less, yeah. as we see here. Because there's no actual strength, no restraint, no creativity. Mm-hmm. No creativity. Yeah. Yeah, you see the defensiveness of being in a corner and hissing. Jesus just walks and says, what is your name? Yes, I give you permission. Well, I have a life workshop this week. And it's that I've been involved with a youth group at our church this fall. There's just me and one other woman leading it together. But last week we had 19 kids show up, which is Whoa, really big. That's amazing, especially for Isn't your cool? little town. Yeah, small place. And we only have like one or two that go to our church. Some of the others might go someplace, but I think most of them nowhere. And most of them haven't ever thought about Jesus before or been properly introduced or have any idea about a worldview that would talk about justice or mercy or any of this stuff. That's so cool. Isn't it crazy? <laughs> yeah. This is a huge deal. Yeah. 
God is doing stuff. It feels like so exciting. And at the same time, like I have no idea how to do this. <laughs> right now we're we're using an alpha course as like the teaching, which is nice and just trying to get to know people. But there's a lot of them and they need more mentors than just two of us once a week. Right. And meanwhile, in town, there's a group of people who are interested in starting Young Life, which is like a parachurch youth organization. The goal is reaching out to the furthest out people who don't know anything about Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it kind of fits with what's going on with the youth group right now. Yeah, it does, which seems super cool. And also it's feeling a little complicated. Like, okay, how do we partner together? How do we be both doing stuff and feeling mutually supportive instead of like it's a competition? Mm -hmm. How do we just approach youth ministry in this town? It feels like it's kind of a pressing question that's come up to the surface. And I'm curious how to be part of it and what our role should be as the church, how I should have a role in the Young Life stuff directly, what it looks like to provide deeper discipleship for those who are ready for it. Anyway, just thinking a lot about youth and the specific youth here and their crazy lives. Yeah, maybe this chapter's got some wisdom. I mean, it has lots of wisdom, but can I ask <laughs> some clarifying questions? You may. First of all, would this youth group kind of replace what you've got going on? Would you then work together and whenever you meet up as a youth group, what that means is you're meeting up with Young Life? It's an open question, I think. So far, I think it would be a separate thing. But if they're both meeting, then it would start to be, okay, do we tell kids, oh yeah, also come to this one too? Or is it kind of, these are the kids we're trying to gather here? It seems like they need to develop distinct purposes if they're both going to continue. Right. And I'm not sure what ours would be versus theirs. I mean, theirs would be that sort of outreach. Young Life is a pretty established model. Ours is a pretty <laughs> malleable structure. Yeah. But right now it's kind of serving a Young Life-y purpose. Does your youth group have a mission statement? No. Okay. It's a pretty pulled together, like, it used to be one thing, then it was this thing based on leadership, based on kids. Yeah. Then there was COVID. Then there was like, let's just have something. So no. Cool. How do you feel about your youth group having the same mission statement as Young Life? Well, I think it's an option. I think it might be possibly better if it was somewhat different. Like if Young Life's mission and purpose is, and I don't know their mission statement, but I think their purpose is reach all sorts of kids, as many as possible, to introduce them to Jesus and help get them connected to places that will take them further along the journey. I wonder if ours would end up being a slightly further along the journey sort of place. Right. Like theirs is the introduction, yours is the discipleship. I mean, not that they have to be mutually exclusive in those roles, but yeah, like maybe ours can be a little bit smaller and offer a place for kids to really be asking questions and talking back or to be teaching Bible Right. That would happen in small group, which is a big thing for your young life. By the way, just for some clarity, I looked up their mission statement and it is oh, to introduce adolescents to Jesus Christ and help them grow in their faith. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a great mission statement. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's the thing is like rather than approaching this like, ah, how's it going to work? Just be like, OK, here's what's happening. Let's see if we can get the people together. And as it develops, keep talking about okay, here's what your role seems to be. Here's what ours seems to be developing into. Here's a gap we're noticing. How can that happen? I think that's a really good idea. And that's actually a connection that I see with the chapter is that it might be a good idea to have a council <laughs> and to just come together and say, hey, this is what's going on with us so far. This is what we see that's needed in the community. Mm. We were wondering what you see in the community and what you're going to offer and how can we support each other? That seems great. <laughs> Does it seem possible? 
Yeah, I mean, potentially logistically difficult to get people to all sign up to a meeting. Yeah. Especially if it's a regular one, which I would love to have. Like maybe even if the prayer group for Young Life, because there's supposed to be like a prayer team, if that could be shared with the other youth stuff happening. Oh, that would be really cool. I feel like that would be incredible. Yeah. Even if that was the only connection you had, that would be a really cool connection. Yeah. And could lead to, you know, conversations and things coming up. But I feel like that this chapter actually like, okay, they're all talking about what to do. But then really what they're doing is making a space for Aslan to appear. Mm. That seems perfect with this prayer group thing. Yeah. Yay. (laughs) Perfect. Wow. (laughs) This is like the most fruitful workshop. (laughs) It does feel like our workshops often are like, hmm, I'll think about that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Feels good to have something that we can actually do. Yeah, that's a practical action item. Woohoo! It's so exciting, Katie. Congratulations on just being part of a really (laughs) exciting time. Man, it is. It's cool. It's tricky, and I bet there will be hurdles. So I hope we're just given what we need in time for them. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, youth group, I miss it. So fun. Oh, (laughs) Fuffy. I should talk about youth group with you more often because you've done it for a lot of time and I haven't. I love it. That would just be nice. Be so fun. I'd love to hear more about it. Thank you. Anytime. Ready for the end? Oh, wow. I guess. Wow. And and maybe everybody can recognize now our final statement that comes right out of this chapter. Yes. Although with less doom involved, I hope. Uh, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, friends, the hour has struck. (laughs) We'll see you next week with our final thoughts. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I still need to read the paragraph. (laughs) Okay. The hour is at hand. Yes, the hour is at hand. Here we go. (laughs) Erebus also had many quarrels, and I'm afraid even fights with Kor. But they always made it up again, so that years later, when they were grown up, they were so used to quarreling and making up again that they got married so as to go on doing it more conveniently. And after King Loon's death, they made a good king and queen of Arkenland, and Ram the Great the most famous of all of the kings of Arkenland was their son. Bree and Hwyn lived happily to a great age in Narnia, and both got married, but not to one another. And there weren't many months in which one or both of them didn't come trotting over the pass to visit their friends at Anvard. Well, friends, the hour has struck. We'll see you next week with our final thoughts on the horse and his boy. And stay tuned for the sequel on Ramekin. <laughs> Ramekin, the pretty good chef. <laughs> <laughs>